This is American Rhapsody, a podcast of the Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin. Each episode, we interview those who witnessed American history firsthand, who have since donated their archives to the Briscoe Center. We also talk to historians, journalists, and others who research in those collections. We're all asking the same question. What actually happened? The story of Trump really is that rather than this Horatio Alger entrepreneurial emblem that he was, he was a state capitalist up and down the line. His wealth was created by the state. He was designated to be a billionaire. In 1979, while working on assignment for New York City's Village Voice, investigative reporter Wayne Barrett spent months investigating developer Donald J. Trump's New York business dealings. Over the next 40 years, Barrett would do so again and again. In fact, he was arguably the first reporter in America to take Trump seriously. Seeing past the glitzy celebrity aura and remaining focused on the deals and how they were made. Trump wasn't the sole focus of Barrett's reporting. His larger target was the murky world of New York City politics in general. Barrett investigated kickbacks, special favors, political contributions, the art of the dodgy deal, so to speak. His reporting chronicled the business and political careers of many, including Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, Roy Cohn, Ed Koch, and numerous others. Barrett died in January 2017, the night before Trump assumed the presidency. Before his death, he had become an enthusiastic mentor to a new generation of reporters interested in the character and psyche of America's 45th president. In fact, he welcomed many reporters to work through his old notes scattered among a miscellany of boxes in his Brooklyn office and basement. Today, Barrett's papers are housed at the Dolph Briscoe Center. They were donated by his wife, Fran Barrett, who lives in Brooklyn and works in the New York governor's office, helping nonprofits partner with state government to provide public services. Fran and Wayne were a team. She managed their shared life in a way that allowed him to be single-minded in his approach to reporting. And she's been one of the driving forces behind a project to collect Wayne's work in a new compendium. The result, without compromise, was published this fall by Bold Type Books. Without Compromise is edited by Eileen Markey, an assistant professor of journalism and media studies at Lehman College, City University of New York. Eileen worked for Wayne Barrett as an intern in the 1990s. She's noted that Barrett taught her the joy of digging and the power of facts, skills that serve the historian as much as the reporter, and skills she needed to see out the project. She spent months working in the Briscoe Center's Barrett Papers to uncover the very best of his reporting. And the result is an outstanding volume that showcases Barrett at work, as well as offering a unique window into New York City politics. Fran Barrett and Eileen Markey, welcome. So what was the motivation behind this book project itself? What were you, what was your goal? 
I guess Eileen was there from the very beginning, but it was mostly journalists who who wanted to keep uh, alive in general this you know rigorous approach to investigative reporting that was not unique to Wayne, but that Wayne sort of you know was very public about and had you know quite a lot of uh, things to say about it and did in fact work with any number of interns, one of whom was Eileen. And uh, so the idea was the the value of journalism, the truth-telling nature of journalism, and the fact that journalism is fact-based. And all of that was, you know, how do we make that come alive? We, at first, uh, the first gatherings, uh, we agreed that we would raise some money. And our first thought was to fund stories that would not otherwise get uh, published and we did that for about a year. I think we sort of supported about five or six stories. We affiliated with, with the nation. And uh, we, uh, but at the end of it, we felt like one story every, you know, when we reevaluated that, we were having sort of, you know, one story every couple of months or something wasn't really getting to the, you know, impact that we had hoped to. And then we were sitting around one night and uh, the subject came up of, well, maybe what we should do is a book. At that point, we were all collectively uh, concerned about the president's leadership. And we realized that Wayne had done most of the original work, uh, early work on Donald Trump, and that we thought, okay, well, here's a way we can raise Wayne's voice into this political debate, but also raise the, the fact that journalism is the only way to get at this problem. So uh, that's that's how we got to the idea of the book. And then the next step, the the uh, the critical step really was there were two critical parts that had to come together. One was that uh, we had already uh, benefited from having met you and having been able to create the archive at Briscoe. And second was Eileen. We And once we had those two things, we were off and running. And that's just sort of how the book came to be. It's a collection of pieces that that Eileen can speak to. But it was uh, that's how we how we got to the book. Well, let me say, I mean, the book uh, is so important to have this book out. And but it's also I've, I've always felt that journalists and historians are siblings in many ways. And, uh, you know, there's a direct connection between the two professions in, in my mind. And you were talking about facts. Uh, there's never been a time in, in my life where uh, the facts weren't more important and preserving the facts, not just, you know, you have to preserve them first before you can disseminate them. So we're trying to preserve the facts. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we like to tell people that uh, we're also providing a function by uh, countering, by, by having the actual evidence of what actually happened. Uh, it counters the, the history deniers and, and the people who just make, the politicians who just make it up as they go along uh, to support their cause. Uh, so uh, I congratulate you uh, and so delighted you're, you're doing this. Um, yeah, Eileen, uh, you met Wayne as an intern, I think, in the late 90s, 1990s, at the Village Voice. Is that correct? Yeah, you're right. I was a 
junior at Fordham University in the Bronx, and I'd I'd worked for my hometown newspaper, Newhouse newspaper in Springfield, Massachusetts in high school and summers in college, the early summers. And then I wanted to stay in the city one summer and uh, and get an internship. And there was these internships at the Village Voice. And uh, my application got put in the Wayne Barrett pile. And so I took train <laughs> down from Springfield for an interview. And what was that experience like working with? Uh, with oh, uh, tremendous, my- tremendous. I've, I've said this to a couple of people lately, but you know, the Peace Corps used to have this slogan that it's the toughest job you'll ever love. Um, and, and that's what it felt like being Wayne's intern. Um, you got this amazing education on New York City and the, the under history of New York City and the um, really a long and, you know, he had such a vast knowledge of how New York City operated starting from the 60s when he arrived and began reporting. Um, you know, that was 30, 35 years at that point. Um, and most of the interns who worked with them obviously were college kids or right out of college. And so we were really excited to be working at this cool newspaper. And, you know, there's still enough of a rube about you when you're 19 or 20 or 21. It's impressive. It's exciting just to go to work for the Village Voice, right, to go down there in the morning and take the train and walk out in Grant's Village and think you're part of this part of the story of New York City journalism. Um, but in particular, working for Wayne was this amazing education. Uh, was that. was uh, did, was his style tough love or was it very nurturing? Very very, very much tough love. Really, kind of famously among interns, tough love. Yeah, an absolutely demanding, irre- unreasonable, irascible, um, <laughs> prone to shouting boss who was also incredibly kind and sweet and generous. And I write about that a little bit in the book. Um, oh, good. You know, there's kind of a, a mystique among interns that we like to tell these war stories and, and you know in other parts of journalism when people hear that you intern for Wayne Barrett they say oh wow I heard you was really tough <laughs> and, and it's true and I think we all kind of feel you know a little bit of swagger that we interned for him um but the fact is that the reason we all kept in touch for 20 and 30 years after our internships and the reason so many of us feel so strongly you know mourned his sickness and his death so much and feel so strongly about getting his reporting out there to ever wider audience now, isn't because he was a tough boss. It was because he was a great journalist that we feel loyal to him. And he was really good to us, right? He was really kind to us, he wrote us recommendation letters for the rest of our lives. He found job openings for us for the rest of our lives. He shared tips, right? When we all went into journalism um, and he had things that would be useful for whatever story, whoever your former intern was working on, you would, you would get information, you would get calls, you would get direction. Um, and he was often, often there for so many of us as, you know, as a sounding board, as a reality track check so that you, you call Wayne up and say, what, what do you make of this? Or is this the right thing to do? Or where should I go next in my career? Um, or is this person a reliable source? So and so are they, what's their background? And of course he would have chapter on in verse on every political operative operating in in New York. Um, so yes, he was a very hard boss, but he was a really great reporter and a really great friend and advocate and mentor um, and kind of like godfather to a lot of us. Did he, did he stress skepticism? He stressed skepticism. He stressed anger, like the right kind of outrage. Um, uh-huh. Journalists Sometimes I think get themselves confused in these sort of academic debates around objectivity. Um, 
And Wayne wasn't objective. He thought that people who stole from the public trust were bad. He thought that people who ripped off poor people were bad. He thought that people who used public office to enrich themselves were bad. He was against that. Uh, and he didn't cover it like a basketball game or a football game. He covered it like a crime. Um, what's objective is what he taught us is the method. And so he wrote in, in one of his, one of his essays, um, as he was leaving the paper that, you know, his politics were always clear, but his reporting wasn't partisan. Uh, he never looked past the wrist of the hand in the public till, right? So if it was a Democrat ripping off the people, or if it was a Republican ripping off the people, if it was someone who he had previously valorized, um, or if it was somebody who he'd known was a crook for a long time, they were all fair game. Uh, and I think that's really worth thinking about now. We're in this media landscape that is really very, very partisan. Um, that, you know, you go to your news channel because that's what you believe, and I go to mine because that's what I believe. And we get, it's like separate churches. We get separate facts. Uh, we get separate stories. It's a, you're going to find a whole different narrative of what's happening in the country depending on what publications you read. And that's not right. That's not good journalism. Um, and so Barrett, you know, it was no, it was no secret that Barrett was a liberal Democrat, but that might've been a secret to the liberal Democrats who he pilloried in his columns, right? <laughs> um, or that might've been a surprise to them. So he taught us that the reporting is objective, that the methods are objective. That right. And that's where we go back uh, as we were talking earlier about facts. Right. And how, how important facts are. That's the way we, I mean, again, this is, there's so many common factors together here between journalism and history, because we're, we're all about the facts also. I mean, we could, we interpret the facts the way we see them based on all kinds of variables, but they still have to be facts, you know? And so what you're telling me is he was very strong on, on the fact part of it, but then he believed that you needed to interpret those facts uh, the way you could see them. And he taught us that it's worth walking a mile to get a fact, that it's worth working three weeks, digging three records to find a fact. Um, And I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes him from other reporters who were working during during the years he was working and really distinguishes him from a lot of what passes as media today um, or passes as, as something like news today. Uh, he didn't write his opinion. He met a secret source by the side of the highway late at night and got a grand jury report and then he could cite it, you know. Um, he dug through mountains of campaign finance data and cross-reference that with probate reports to understand whom was related to whom, and then could cite it and say, here's the money that went to this politician, here's the zoning variance that that uh, funder got in return, and that it was worth sweating to get those facts. It was worth working hard to find them. So, you know, when his papers um, wonderfully were were sent to you guys and, and organized by the Briscoe Center, it, it's fa- it's fantastic that his papers exist and that his papers are now preserved in an archive. And I think there's some sort of beautiful poetic symmetry in the fact that that a number of journalists now uh, have gone to to access those papers in the Briscoe Center archive um, because what Barrett really taught his his interns is the love of digging, uh, this belief that. What you're looking for is somewhere. It's written down. Somebody put it on a piece of paper somewhere. Some some court has an official document on it. 
some tax file exists. Um, there's a election board of elections, you know, buff card on such and such, and we can find facts. We don't have to use conjecture. Uh, and so now the fact that these hundreds of boxes of his reporting exists there in your, your fantastic archive is just beautiful. So that's what I was thinking a lot when I was down, uh, when I was at, in Austin with you last fall was this sort of gorgeous circular poetry of right, all right, 20 years ago when I was a kid, this guy taught me to really love digging in, uh, digging into documents, loved that, that feeling when you find the document to, ha, see here, I got it notarized. Uh, and so then spending a week diving into the boxes at the center, in this case, looking for Wayne, um, was, was well, you, you you sound like a historian to me, uh, Arlene, which is. <laughs> I, I think uh, you know you know she is she is a part historian. I'm sure she would, you know, because her you know Eileen's point about facts is so well taken. It's sort of the thing that mattered more to to Wayne. Um, often a struggle between the two of us personally because I'm not really a detail fact person, so I will make some statement, and he would cross-examine me over what you know, like whether or not that was actually, actually, actually what was said, or who was there, or what I saw, or whatever. So we often, you know, on the personal level, we had a major uh, ongoing dispute about what whether or not that was the most important thing in life, but the facts were documented for Wayne in all of the, uh, as Eileen says, the divorce papers, the the bankruptcy papers, anything that he could get that would sort of give, uh, you know, put that, you know, be the source of that fact that he could show someone else. And after so many years of him doing that, uh, as you could attest, um, that you and your staff came to see that there were wall-to-wall boxes in our house. Yes. Yeah. And, and he was not one who believed in filing in any way that anyone could understand. He understood it, but it wasn't alphabetical or chronological. It was just box after box after box. I have photographs of, uh, you know, our, our basement floor, which was just wall-to-wall boxes. And, they were not just there. We had, a, 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 at the time, we had a, a second house in, near the Jersey Shore, near where my mother lived, and there were boxes there, and then there were boxes at the Nation Institute, and there were there were boxes everywhere, and, and what to do with them, I mean, and how to, you know, how to make sense of them, or was it only that Wayne was the only person who would ever be able to understand where they were? I mean, people would call and say they were looking for a document, other journalists, and Wayne would say, yes, I have that, but it's in the basement. You'd have to go find it. So these poor souls would come to our house and then spend a week looking for the right box that had the piece of paper in it that they needed and that Wayne remembered actually existed, but, you know, in no way in, organized in any way that anyone could access it. Much like history, it, it can't just be a blur. It's got to be organized in some way. And really, that's, I think, the gift that Briscoe uh, has given us is taking all of those facts and putting them in an order that other people who are looking at an issue or a problem 
uh, you know, can search through them. So that's quite remarkable, really. And beyond my wildest expectations, because I was totally overwhelmed with the, uh, I don't know, at one point your staff had a count as to how many how many boxes there were exactly. As I do remember coming up the block after you your team had been there for maybe two weeks, I don't know, and <laughs> in Brooklyn. And they, uh, I was coming up the street and my neighbor stopped me and he said, Fran, are you moving? And I said, no, no, why? And there's a moving van <laughs> in front of my house uh, with taking the boxes out. You know, that's how many boxes there were. There was actually like a moving van type truck that had to come and take them away. And that was only one location. They also went to New Jersey and they went somewhere else to find things, too. It was a great project uh, uh, for my staff, believe me. They, they, they really, a very mem- it was a very memorable uh, visit that they had there. I, I, was, I was stunned that the nightmare of my life, which was all these boxes, was your staff arrive and they go, they're, they're overjoyed. They're like, oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, we, we don't look at these things the same way because to me it just looks like a nightmare that I'll never be able to get out from under. Well, you know, you, you couldn't have stated it better uh, really than – you actually better than I can about what it is that we do uh, and what, we, what we're doing with Wayne's papers and sorting and preserving and maintaining them and making them accessible uh, to anyone who needs access to them. Uh, you did a beautiful job of describing what we do, Fran. I appreciate that. Let me ask you uh, also, uh, what, what's your, what are your hopes, Fran, for these papers in the future? Uh, if you can kind of take a glimpse ahead, if you can. I mean, you know, what, what do you hope is going to be done uh, with them in terms of not from our standpoint, but from our users and our visitors? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that these documents record the history of New York in a way that, uh, it, you know, is it, not done in other places. And so the, the people who want to understand or the history of the, of the country in some ways, you know, it's, if you want to understand how we got where we are, we have to understand where we were and all the small compromises that were made, all the times we looked the other way, that's that's how we got where we are today. And the Wayne's work was singularly about not letting that happen, never looking the other way, always finding, you know, the fact, making the point that something that was being said was not true and ought to be challenged for the truth. If, if that's and that's where the truth rests is in those files that now exist at Briscoe. That's where the truth of who did what to who, who got money for what, who got money, and because they got money, they did something else. That all of that is mapped out. In terms of you know, as a as a case example, maybe in the city of New York, uh, but not just New York. And he there was, you know, he had a much broader reach than the city. But I I feel like that's what my that's why I feel so good about Briscoe, even though I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a 
Brooklyn girl. And the, when you first called me, I was like, why on earth would I send Wayne's papers to Texas? I mean, of course, of and, course. <laughs> and it has, in fact, come up in several conversations with other journalists. Brand, what were you thinking? Why did you send everything to Texas, right? Why do we have to go to Texas? But in the, the truth of the matter is that you were, first of all, you were artful and charming and diligent and persistent. Um, but also you were offering a complete respectful package of what could be done. Other folks who spoke to me were talking to me about, well, it would be a few years uh, till they could even consider, you know, putting staff to it, and it would take a lot of staff. Uh, they had lots of trepidation about the scope of it or the breadth of it. That didn't bother you one bit. You were like, the bigger, the better, the more information. That's what we are. That's what we do. We <laughs> want information. So I just felt like you had all the right, the instincts that that Wayne would that Wayne would respect, you know, that Wayne would want to hear. And Wayne has a sister who lives in Texas, and he was raised in Virginia. He was his son of the South, and, uh, you know, that was also, imp- you know, something that sort of stuck in my head as I looked at Texas. But Well, Fran, thank you for saying that. Uh, you know, size has never daunted us, I must say. <laughs> but we, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you know, when you get the ExxonMobil, uh, archive and they come to you in, tw- in 20 tractor trailer trucks. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, so, you know, let's let's switch to, uh, shall I say, the elephant in the room uh, for just a few minutes. And uh, let me explain what I mean. Uh, you know, obviously a very large focus of Wayne's work from the late 70s was the career of a certain New York developer named Donald Trump. Uh, how did Trump get on Wayne's radar that early in Trump's career? Um, well, you know, why do you think he, Wayne took Trump seriously before so many other people did? I mean, that's a great, the way you phrased it is really the key thing. He took him seriously. Uh, Donald Trump never had any shortage of ink. In, in the mid and late 70s, he was getting lots of coverage in the New York press. Um, in the as a celebrity, right? Uh, He was getting a lot of public relations coverage, frankly. Um, It's funny to even think of Wayne conceiving of something in the terms of celebrity, right? He was only, only serious in those kinds of ways. Um, So he took Donald Trump seriously because here was this developer, um, a creature of the clubhouse. His father was a creature of clubhouse politics in, in Brooklyn and Queens. Um, Wayne Barrett and his mentor, Jack Newfield, had had really made their vocation um, around reporting on and, and shedding a disinfecting sunlight on the machinations of the political clubhouse in, in the boroughs of New York City. And that clubhouse's stranglehold on, on the Beam administration initially when Wayne started writing the mayor of New York in the 70s. Um, and here was this developer making the leap from Queens real estate, Brooklyn real estate, to Manhattan, to the big lights, bright city. And he made that leap with all of the cigar chomping, smoke-filled room, favored dealing benefits of his father and of the, the political clubhouse of New York City. 
Um, and he made that leap with really wide open hands, uh, ready to receive public benefits. Um, and that was, you know, Donald Trump's very first deals in Manhattan were made possible by by the public wheel, um, by redistributing public dollars, tax dollars to this brash young developer. Um, and Wayne paid attention to that sort of thing. Wayne, you know, it's the classic uh, investigative journalism motto of follow, follow the money, right, from, from Watergate. But um, he followed the money. He wanted to know who is this guy who's getting all this public money and how is this guy getting all this public money? Um, what I learned in going to the Briscoe Center and being able to look through your fantastic collection of Wayne's papers is that Wayne's career traced the history of New York City in the end of the century or in the turn of the century. Obviously, I knew what years he worked at The Voice, and I and I and I read him all the weeks since I've been here. Um, but I think we just, you know, reporters. I guess this is one way, and we are different than historians, is that we're we're terribly focused on each week, on the present, on whatever our next deadline is. And so I think a lot of us always read Wayne Barrett's re- reporting as, all right, so what do we get this week? Or what do we get this month? Or, okay, every few years he's writing a new book. That's the story today. Um, and we don't do the pullback and look at the full um, the full arc of something. Um, but in putting Without Compromise together and traveling to the Briscoe Center to do this digging in his papers, I kind of thought it was my you know, it was part of my job as the editor to figure out what a what a narrative is. What is the narrative of Wayne Barrett's work um, beyond the relentless present of each week? And so in spending all these days digging through the papers in your beautiful facility, I realized that what I was looking at was the story of post-fiscal crisis New York City um, and and how we got to the point we're at today. So in the last four years, many people in the United States have asked themselves, how did we get here? Um, this isn't the country I recognize. How, how do we have a presidency that operates this way? Um, touting all, all conventions, um, touting all sorts of norms of behavior, um, particularly really among the uh, emoluments clause things, right? The idea of, of using the office for private financial gain. Um, and, you know, the answer to that question is in your archives. The answer to that question is in, in Wayne Barrett's earliest reporting on Donald Trump. Um, he was a creation of the choices that New York City and state, very much encouraged by the federal government, made after our fiscal crisis in the 70s. We decided that we needed to subsidize um we needed to subsidize wealth. We needed to do some things to make Manhattan glittery and exciting and bring the right kind of people back into the center city. And we chose to do that by giving tremendous buckets full of money uh, to a really well-connected developer. And that developer was Donald Trump. And Wayne noticed those things because he was much more, um, it it drew to his attention much more the the transfer of money and the transfer of political favors than the size of the limousine or the style of suits. And Fran, maybe you can tell that story about uh, you know Wayne went to went to Trump's apartment at one point. Yeah, there was a there was a time when his uh, personal life was so highly uh, in, you know kind of shown in in public media, and uh, they Trump thought that he could win Wayne over. And so he invited Wayne into this 
his new apartment. Uh, I think it was Marla Maples was their wife then. I don't remember which one. But um, what happened is that they invited Wayne to the apartment. And the first part of the meeting was her showing him around the apartment. And Donald actually thought that this would be of interest to Wayne, right? I can tell you because when we bought our house, I said to Wayne, you know, he wanted nothing to do with it, right? So finally, uh, I had shown him in the end two or three possible houses that we might move to, right? And the day we were leaving our apartment, um, he went out and said that he would go ahead and had some things in the car. Then he came back upstairs to me and said, and which house was it? Because he had no idea. (laughs) Zero idea where he was going or what was going to happen next. But anyway, so this was not a topic that would interest him being dragged around this beautifully, totally restored, in those days, white on white apartment. (laughs) And um, so after he comes back, he talks to Donald and he's talking about like everything Donald had said. And I just said to him, what, what, what was the apartment like? The whole thing was about the apartment. What was the apartment like? Right. And he said, Oh, you know, Fran, it, it was big. And that was all he had. <laughs> Nothing else. This woman probably spent a million dollars decorating this apartment. And his, his take on it was, well, all he could, all that struck him was that it was big, you know, And, you know, when he was doing the research on Donald in the early days, uh, Donald actually managed to get a phone call into Wayne as Wayne was sitting in the conference room researching uh, some documents at a law firm or something. And the phone rang in the in the conference room and he picked up the phone. Uh, There's no one else there. So he, he picked it up and it was Donald. And uh, Donald said that he understood that Wayne was interested in him and he'd like to talk to Wayne too. But uh, one thing was that uh, he understood also that Wayne and I lived in Brownsville, a community we love, happens to be a very poor community. And um, he thought that he said to Wayne, well, you know, I have a lot of apartments. I could get you an apartment in a good neighborhood, you know, and uh that was, of course, the last thing in the world that Wayne would, uh, you know, would do would be to take, uh, you know, the favor of an apartment. So, uh, so Donald Donald misread him early up, but I think he got the message eventually. So, Fran, as you know, the the main purpose of our podcast is to bring attention to the center's valuable resources that are available for research and teaching. Now, those resources include an extensive archive of papers and other materials documenting the history of the American news media. Our holdings include uh, the papers of broadcast journalists such as Walter Cronkite and Morley Safer and newspaper reporters such as Jack Newfield. So Fran, I wanted to ask you, could you tell us just a little bit uh, here about uh, Wayne's relationship with Jack Newfield, whose papers are also here at the center? Um, yeah, Eileen actually mentioned uh, Jack as a as a mentor. I mean, I think that's that's exactly right. Wayne was a huge uh, fan of Jack's. When we were living in Brownsville, Wayne was putting out a community newspaper there with a lot of community people that he called the People's Voice, and uh, Jack 
saw that paper and they were doing uh, investigative work at a very grassroots level. They would publish in the People's Voice. Wayne uh, would uh, be working with a cadre of folks from Brownsville. They would publish the picture of a local drug dealer and where, you know, what corner he worked on so that people in the community could know to avoid, you know, that particular setting. And that attracted Jack uh, who was at that time an established journalist at the Village Voice. And Jack began to ask Wayne, you know, to come in to Voice to write, you know, to take assignments and things like that. And the relationship just grew from there. I mean, they were very, very different in terms of their sort of reporting and writing style. In fact, it was Jack who first uh, suggested to Wayne that he, quote, take a look at uh, Donald Trump. I think Wayne makes reference to that in one of his books, but um, they were they were friends. They they collaborated on any number of things every single week at The Voice, uh, both columns and longer stories. They collaborated on picking stories, and uh, they also um, you know they wrote City for Sale together, which was uh, you know a, a kind of first kind of collection of this notion that politics buys up or can buy up, uh, you know, uh, people and bring them into the mix for the purpose of getting rich. So um, Jack was a very close friend and uh, Janie and I became friends and the the two families uh, were, you know, very often together, socializing, et cetera. So Jack was a was a good ally and a good friend to Wayne. So is there anything uh, else that either one of you would like to say, uh, you know, on this on this podcast about about Wayne Barrett and his papers? I guess I would. I'm always afraid I ramble when I speak, and I, I always mean to put down index cards before I do one of these interviews. Um, but I think just to praise what the Briscoe Center has, uh, the, the quality of your collection, the quality of your, um, you know, maintenance and, and uh, the way it's presented and the way it's made accessible for people, that, that really what you have in the Wayne Barrett papers at the Briscoe Center is the story of how we got here as a country. Um, it's a story that starts in New York City. Um, I'll, I'll be provincial enough a New Yorker to say that. Um, but in looking into this history of uh, the sort of things that Wayne wrote about from the 1970s fiscal crisis forward, we see the roots of where the country got to today. Uh, this tremendous discrepancy between uh, wealth and poverty is tremendous and, and really shameless is really the only word that I can think of. Shameless uh, political culture of favor um, and, and, you know, benefit for the few. Um, it's you know you're a you're an American historian you know that that's actually out of step um, with some other currents um, throughout the course of U.S. history, but that we're at this point of really a nakedly mendacious politics, um, and that hasn't always been the case. But we can see in the boxes that you have of the Wayne Barrett papers the roots of how we got to this part uh, to this point in American history where we have access to the presidency for sale, um, where we have absolutely no, no guilt, no shame 
in trying to turn um, a turn a profit off of public mm-hmm. position, and and that's all written down um, in the records of the UDC of the Urban Development Corporation, which you have in you know box thirty six or something. Um, when I was when I was at Briscoe last fall, sifting through those boxes, I I came across those boxes on Wayne's investigation into the Urban Development Corp, which is um, a, a '70s era public public benefit. Um, you know, something that was supposed to spur development in the city. And you just see all of these relationships intersecting through it, um, from Roy Cohn to Donald Trump um, to, to you know, more respectable names in New York politics. And then these are people who have really national sway, right, um, that, that connect into whole, uh, a whole changed orientation with what we think is the purpose of government, Um and I did a lot of thinking when I was sitting through those boxes, um, putting my hands in all these boxes, touching all these old papers, um, looking at all these little scribbles on them, um, and thinking about what's left behind um, by this kind of work, what's left behind by, you know, the the, the life's work of a good person, um, and what remains, you know, any any anyone that any of us lose, whether they're professional friends or really dear close personal friends. Uh, or family, you know, you, you carry them around with you and you also always kind of look for, look for lingering evidence of that person. Um, and so in those boxes, I was very much looking for evidence of a, of a person I greatly admired and really cared a great deal about who'd been really kind to me. Um, and I was able to find that because we've preserved this actual history. Um, and now it's open for other people to dig and for other people to interpret and try to understand uh, this segment of American history. What's what's clear to me in looking through Wayne's papers, and which I write about in the essay in the book, um, is that Wayne was motivated by this this belief in facts, this belief in the power of facts, uh, that seems like almost quaint. Um, a, a belief that if we know enough, we will be able to make better choices. And so he made himself a soldier for figuring those facts out. He made himself a detective for the people he liked to say, uh, to collect those facts so that the people could make their choices. Um, and, and we have access to them. Um, and he was motivated by this, you know, for a variety of reasons. One is a, a really fantastic anchor, which I think is a perfectly reasonable reaction to injustice. Um, he was also, you know, even underneath that anger though, there has to be a, a, an idealism and a kind of sweetness that, that believes that people deserve better, right? That you you can't be angry unless you're actually a little bit hopeful. Um, you don't go dig up facts unless you actually have some optimism to believe that 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 they'll convince, that they'll change, that they'll that they'll lead to um, a greater imposition of justice. Um, so when I think about these boxes and boxes, and this, you know, what thirty-page finding aid you had uh, on the Wayne Barrett papers. To me, that's a testament to optimism. It's a testament to the belief that we deserve good government, um, that that we deserve to be well served by the people elected to lead us, um, and to a really what has to be at root a joyful belief that if you find something out, it can help, that it can make better. Um, so Wayne was not dour. Uh, Wayne was not a downcast kind of guy. He had a great old time uh, hunting up the crooks. And writing about them every week, and and he shared that uh, that joy and that sort of 
esprit de corps with all of all of us whom he trained, and I think really with legions of readers. And so I'm really happy that 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 history is preserved now for other students of journalism who go to the center, and for other historians who go to the center. You'll learn some dark things from a um, from a guy who had a really bright belief in, in what we deserve and in the power of facts and democracy. Well, that that's uh, was beautifully and well well stated. And I don't think you ramble at all, by the way. <laughs> um, one of the attractions uh, about Frisco for me was the fact that it was becoming a center for journalism, you know, journalists across the board, all types, and that other great journalists had their work at Briscoe. And that meant to me that a person looking for uh, you know, researching a particular, you know, issue or person or, or bit of history could look in a couple of different takes in terms of, you know, how that, you know, how that got, how that particular event laid out at, uh, you know, print media, how it played out in the broadcast media, for example. So I think this notion that Briscoe has of building a center for the repository of great journalists, I think that's an honorable and important uh, kind of opportunity for the rest of the country and for everyone who cares to try to figure out what happened in any particular given situation. And so for me, I just wanted to add that everything Eileen said is absolutely true. And for me, there was just this other piece of... um, You know, I was sitting in Albany the night that you called me, uh, seeing whether or not we were going to have this arrangement. And the thing that I think stuck in my head was that you were, in fact, creating at Briscoe a premier center for journalism, period. And as much as Wayne... Wayne's particular work was important as much as he loved the truth and he loved writing. He loved journalism. And there's something about what you're doing there that I thought he would really welcome. So, Thank you for that, friends. Uh, that really means a lot to me. Uh, it really does. Thank you for saying that. And again, as I've told you before, and I'll say it uh, forever, we are greatly honored uh, that you chose uh, us to, to, you know, to preserve uh, his work and to make it available. And I thank you for that uh, with all my heart. The Doc Briscoe Center preserves the raw materials of the past. Reporters' notebooks, photographs, letters and diaries, organizational records, and much more. Today's episode was made possible by the Wayne Barrett Papers. Barrett's collection is extensive. It measures nearly 300 linear feet in size, and it consists mainly of correspondence, court records, research notes, and article drafts. The center's other collections related to New York print journalism include the clipping works of the New York Herald Tribune and the New York Journal American. 
The papers of journalist Jack Newfield, who worked at the Village Voice with Barrett. Those of Paul Colford, who worked for the New York Daily News and the Associated Press. And those of legendary columnists Walter Winchell and Liz Smith. These collections are among thousands housed at the center. People across America have entrusted this evidence to us, and it's used by people from across America. In addition to inspiring their work, it inspires our own. Books, documentaries, exhibits, and digital humanities projects. By collecting, preserving, and making available these materials, we help keep the debates and arguments about who we Americans are rooted in evidence, and we keep the American Rhapsody going.